0: Good morning, my friends. Welcome to Thrive Worship here at Lovers Lane. My name is Kay Eck. I serve as the executive pastor here at Lovers Lane. And you know that here in Thrive, last Sunday we celebrated Scott and Reagan Gilliland and their ministry of over 10 years here. And next Sunday we are so excited to welcome Pastor Andy Nelms, who will be joining us. Thank you so much for checking in online. I see that we have Julie with us and Rick and Cindy and Kayla and Kathy And Gail, if you would drop a comment as you're watching just to let us know that you're here. That's really helpful to us so that we can pray for you um, and be with you this week. This week, we're wrapping up our sermon series called Bones. And this has been a really awesome sermon series. We have looked and considered what it means when Adam and Eve say that you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then we looked at Ezekiel in the valley of the dry bones and that God breathes life right into that place. And then, last week, we celebrated Scott and Reagan and they reminded us to carry the bones with us. Like Joseph's ancestors carried his bones from Egypt... All the way to Israel, to the promised land. And today we're going to look at the story of Job. One of his friends um, is who we're going to focus on. His name is Eliphaz. But his friend experienced fear all the way down to his bones. And so before we do that, let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that we are gathered in this time and in this way. God, we know that you are here with us, and where two or three are gathered, that you um, are here in our presence. So make us so mindful of that, Lord. We love you. We trust you. Would you open our hearts and minds to what you would teach us today? It's in your son's holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. So my question for you is, have you ever experienced fear all the way, all the way down to your bones? I asked myself that question in getting ready for our sermon today and I immediately went back to a mission trip that I took to Haiti, my very first mission trip in 2011. We took 10 young adults right after the earthquake happened in Port-au-Prince and they actually took us up to um, Hinch, which is in the center of the country. This, it took maybe a five-hour drive through the mountains to get up to Hinch and Hinch um, is very remote. This trip was incredible and life-changing and God moved in some incredible ways and I would love to tell you more about Haiti. I'm really passionate about it um, and invite you to come on a trip with us the next time we're able to go. But one of the things I will never forget about Hinch is the, the size of the spiders that were there. See, like I said, the accommodations were really remote. We ended up sleeping inside the church that we were actually building on these little cots with mosquito nets. And so we were slinging concrete and everything was dirty and there was no running water. We took our baths in a bucket. um, And we went to the bathroom in this little concrete hole that had just a, a tin enclosure around it with this kind of makeshift door. And at night... These huge spiders, and I'm not exaggerating at all, these huge spiders, they're like this big, would be in the bathroom, like up in the corners of the bathroom, and there were between usually three to ten of them, and so the girls developed the system that you would go to the bathroom with a buddy, and you'd take your flashlights, and you'd shine your light, and you'd count how many spiders there were, then you'd do your business in the bathroom, and your buddy would hold the flashlight so you could keep an eye on the spiders. So, um, one day I went to the bathroom with my friend Amy, who um, is now the pastor of Christ Foundry. She's the most incredible human being in the world. Some of you know Amy Spore. She was on her mission trip. She was my buddy. And we go to the bathroom and we count the spiders. I think there were six and then I come out of the bathroom, and there were only five spiders. And I was freaked out. And I was like, Amy, Amy, I, I think one of the spiders, you know, it's not there. And she said, oh, my God, Kay, it's on your back. And I started screaming and freaking out and running around. And then she said, Kay, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm just kidding. There's no spider on your back. And to this day, I am not sure if I've forgiven her for this little joke. But I ended up getting into my uh, little mosquito net tent, getting into the fetal position, and I literally cried. I was so scared, fear just gripped me all the way down to my bones. Now, this is a silly and funny story, but many of us have experienced fear down to our bones. I, I really wish I could sit with each of you and hear about what has scared you or what is scaring you. But fear is a part of life. I bet most most of us go through life carrying some sort of fear or worry or anxiety that just sticks with us. Fear, it can affect our opportunities or our relationships. It can determine the way that we parent. Fear can keep us up at night. I would dare say that all of us have had this experience before. But you know, fear doesn't always have to be a bad thing. Because what fear does for us is actually really unique to the human condition. Andy Stanley puts it this way. He says, fear is a byproduct of our ability to accumulate knowledge and then project that knowledge into the future. So fear is a byproduct of our ability to take in knowledge and information and ideas and then project that knowledge into the future and consider the what ifs, right? This is unique to the human experience. My dog can't do that. A fish swimming in a bowl can't do that. This is unique to us, and and because we can take ideas and information and knowledge and then push it into the future, that's why we're able to hope. That's why we're able to imagine and to create and to say things like, I can't wait for whatever to happen. But the converse is also true. What it can do, what fear can do, is to cause us to think about the what-ifs and the worst-case scenarios of the future, And this ability can cause us to fear, and then fear can throw us off balance, and it can cause us to be really overprotective or really um, self-focused. I think we've all experienced this. So in the Old Testament, we find the book of Job. And we could literally spend months going through the book of Job. I hope that you will read it. But like I said, I want to focus on Job's friend named Eliphaz, We're introduced to Job in Job chapter 1 of the book, and we're told that this man, 1-1, this man was blameless and upright, that he feared God and shunned evil. Job is blameless and upright. He feared God, and, and, and that's important for us. He feared God and shunned evil. Job was faithful to his wife, and he was kind to the poor, and he was generous with his workers. He was this wealthy landowner who had thousands of sheep and camels and oxen and he had 10 children and every day he would go to the temple and he would make an offering for his children and he would pray for them. Job's, Job's life was one of virtue and uprightness and so much so that it drew the attention of God. God noticed him because he was different. And so the story goes that Job, um, God knew that Job would be faithful to him always. He knew it. And Satan came to God and said, I don't believe that this guy can remain faithful for always. So, um, Job, he, Satan says, Job is going to curse God if bad things start to happen. And God says, there's no way. And so what we see in this book of Job is that within one single day, Job literally loses everything. His livestock, his livestock. His servants are destroyed by enemies. His fields are burned up with fire. His children are killed by a freak accident where the wind comes and knocks their tent over. Job himself is stricken with these terrible sores all over his body. Yet, the Bible tells us that Job remained faithful to God. So, Job would not curse God. As his wife encouraged him to. Job would not sin. Job kept his integrity this whole time. And so he goes on to this ash heap. And um, he is sitting. It's what what we call sitting Shiva. For seven days and seven nights. He sits... And three of his friends come to comfort him, and they sit, Shiva, nobody says anything. They sit in silence, and the seven days and the seven nights is up. And finally, Job just cries out to God. He can't help but cry out to God and to um, look for the comfort that comes from God. But his friend Eliphaz, he's got stuff to say. He's been sitting there for seven days with his buddy, and he's he's not going to have it anymore. He just can't keep quiet. So he launches into this monologue about how Job must have sinned. Job must have had some secret sin in his life to incite this tragedy that he's experiencing. He says in Job 4:7, he asks this question, Who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? So Job, essentially, you're reaping what you sowed. You could not have been blameless after all. All of that suffering that you're experiencing must be a result of something that you did, Job. So side note here, this isn't the type of theology that I buy into or that we buy into. I don't believe that God causes bad things to happen to us. I believe that they happen because we live in a world that's filled with sin and with brokenness and bad stuff happens. But the promise to us is that God is with us in it. But then Eliphaz, he goes on and he talks about this dream that he had. And starting in verse 12 of chapter 4, he says, I had this dream and this ghost or this spirit came across my body and I got goosebumps and all the hair on my body stood up. And, and a fear and trembling shook me all the way to my bones. It seized me and made me shake all the way to my bones. We've probably experienced that, something that made us shake all the way to our bones. But he goes on to say that this dream revealed to him that Job had the secret sin, that, you know, you must be wrong, Job. I, I might argue that he wasn't too much of a comfort to Job when he's supposed to be there comforting his friend. But there's something that's really interesting here. Eliphaz has this great fear come over him, so much so that, I mean, it literally shakes him to his core, all the way down to his bones. But Eliphaz doesn't seem to understand the presence and the power of God, or that Job could be blameless and upright simply because of his faith in God. Job 1.1, like we looked at, it says, Job feared God, shunned evil. So there's something to this fear of God that is different from the fear of projecting knowledge into the future, which is what Eliphaz does with his dream. He takes that knowledge, he projects it in the future, he goes right to fear. This fear causes him anxiety and worry, and in an attempt to comfort Job, he actually does the exact opposite. He says that That God, you know, you should be afraid, Job, because you're doing something wrong. When God says, no, Job, do not fear. Do not fear. Do you know that in the Bible there are 365 references to the phrase, do not be afraid, or fear not, or don't, you know, don't be scared. Some sort of that is in the Bible 365 times. Perhaps we need to hear, do not fear, every single day. Because fear really is a reality in our lives. However, there's this story of Jesus and his disciples that I want us to look at this morning. And it might be somewhat familiar to you, but there are some central messages that Jesus teaches his disciples over and over. And one of them is, do not be afraid. But just saying, don't fe- be afraid, I mean, it's easy to say and really hard to do, right? It's like Jesus is just like, stop. Just stop it. Stop being afraid just quit. Well, okay, Jesus, how do you actually do that? How do we actually fear not? How do we not let fear take control, especially when there are some very real things in the world that we should be afraid of? So Jesus gathers his disciples who have given their lives for him, and he prepares to send them out on a mission, and he tells them, listen, I am sending you like sheep Among the wolves. I'm sending you out like sheep among the wolves. And that's just a metaphor for us. I'm not around sheep very often, but the disciples were. They knew that meant that the sheep were hunted and killed um, and eaten. So Jesus essentially is saying to his disciples here I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, and you too, you too will most likely be beaten and arrested and perhaps even martyred. But don't be afraid. Well, Jesus, that's scary. That's something that any normal human being would be afraid of. But he goes on to give them this example. Miss Jennifer talked about it in our children's moment. He reminds them that two sparrows cost literally a cent. They're, they're essentially worthless to us. They cost half a penny. But they're not worthless to God. He says God cares for them and loves them. And he reminds them in Matthew ten thirty, Do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. He's essentially saying, don't be afraid. It doesn't just make the scary go away. Fear is a part of life. But what we do with that fear is what becomes so important. Jesus reminds him, the disciples, that God loves them and God cares for them, and that they can face anything because of that. Jesus teaches this over and over. Do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. He teaches it to his disciples. And and then there's this time when the disciples are really tested in it. It's kind of like they were in the classroom and then he's like, hey guys, let's go on this field trip and see if you're learning what I'm trying to teach you. And what I love about the disciples is that they get it wrong so often, but they try really hard. But in Matthew chapter 8, we read about a time when Jesus got into a boat and his disciples followed him. That's what you do as followers of Christ. They get in the boat with him. And scripture tells us in Matthew 8, 23 that without warning, just all of a sudden, this furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat and and Jesus was sleeping. The disciples woke him up saying, Lord, Lord, save us. Save us. We're going to drown. But just imagine the sound of the thunder and the flash of lightning and the rain pouring down and soaking them all. I'm sure they had to scream at each other just to be able to hear. And then Jesus is just asleep. I mean, I don't know how you sleep through that, but Jesus was asleep. Or maybe he was faking. I don't know. But they're like, Jesus, get up. And it wasn't like a, hey, good morning, Jesus. It's like, Jesus, get up, get up, help us. And what does Jesus say when he rouses awake? He replies, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? I bet Jesus was thinking, y'all, we've been over and over and over this. But he's kind and he reminds them they don't have to be afraid. He stands up, maybe he stands up, maybe he just props up on an elbow. And he rebukes the wind, and he rebukes the waves, and all is calm. What happens here is that Jesus doesn't panic in the storm. Jesus doesn't panic in fear. The disciples are the ones who panicked. In all of the stuff that we go through in life, in all of the storms, in all of the things that cause fear for us, God doesn't panic. God doesn't seize up in fear. We are the ones who panic. I think what Jesus wants the disciples to realize and what he's teaching us as well is that God doesn't panic. We are the ones who so often turn to fear, even when we're told to fear not. The scripture goes on to say, The disciples were in the boat and they were amazed. And they asked this question, What kind of man is this? even the wind and the waves obey him the same story in the gospel of mark says they were terrified and they ask each other who is this even the wind and the waves will obey him who is this what kind of man is this some translations will tell us that the disciples feared a great fear you see the disciples ask the right question here who is this man What kind of man is this? What kind of man can rebuke the wind and cause nature to obey him? We know the answer to this. Jesus was not only man, he was fully divine. Jesus is God in and of God's self. And this question, what kind of man is this? It shows us they initially were afraid of the storm and all the stuff that was happening in the boat. But then they feared a greater fear. Fear. They feared something greater. They realized who was in the boat with them. The king of the universe, the master of the wind and the seas, the savior of the world. That's who was in the boat with them and they feared a great fear. They were in awe of God with them. They had a holy reverence or a holy fear of whose presence they were in. And for just a moment, maybe it was just a little fleeting moment, but their fear was overwhelmed by the presence of Jesus. The lesson of the disciples to the the lesson of Jesus to the disciples is this. You don't have to let fear overwhelm you because there is something so much more overwhelming. I will overwhelm you. I will overwhelm your heart with a peace that passes understanding. You don't have to let fear control your thoughts and your mind because there is something more overwhelming. I will speak tenderly to you the words that just you need to hear. You don't have to let fear dictate your next move because I am with you in all things and we can do hard things together. You can trust me. You don't let, have to let fear be the centerpiece of your life because there is something greater. I am greater and I love you and I care for you and I am with you. So Job understood this something greater, right? Remember Job one one told us that Job was blameless and upright, and he feared God, and he shunned evil. Job was so overwhelmed. He was so overwhelmed with God's presence in his life that he had this holy reverence, this holy awe of God. And even in the midst of tragedy, remember, he lost literally everything. Even in the midst of tragedy, when he could have so easily succumbed to fear, he remained faithful to God with every ounce of his being. Job wasn't afraid because he knew God. He still faced suffering. He still faced terrible hardship. But he wasn't afraid because he knew the answer to the question, who is this man? He knew God. We don't have to be afraid because we know God too. The love that God has for you is overwhelming and greater than anything else that you will face in life. When we are overwhelmed with fear, maybe we be overwhelmed with the greater awe of knowing God's presence with us in all things. And so if we go back to the disciples, they watched as Jesus entered into Jerusalem the very last week of his life. And he entered to the crowds who cheered him and praised him. There was this great parade. But by the end of the week, the very same people who were cheering for him are ready to have him crucified. They arrest him, they beat him, they spat upon him, and he's crucified. And what did the disciples do again? They panicked. They got scared. They thought that Jesus must have been lying about everything that he told them. They thought they got it wrong. They hid, they lied, they denied Jesus. But then, three days later, they witness an empty tomb And a resurrected Lord, and all of a sudden, every single thing made sense. All of what Jesus taught them was true after all. Everything that Jesus told them was right. The resurrection then became about every single thing that they did. The resurrection changes everything. It wasn't just something that they talked about on Easter, but it impacted every single ounce of their lives and their ministries. I think the resurrection gave them confidence and strength and validated the answer to the question, who is this man? The world, it continued to be a really scary place. But the disciples were obedient to go into all of the world as Jesus told them to do in Matthew 28. They went into the world and they they showed the love of God and they went without fear because they knew this overwhelming presence of God with them. And that presence of God with us will cast out all fear. They didn't have to be afraid of being beaten or rejected or martyred, and most of them were. But they went knowing the great fear of the Lord. They, like Job, knew what it meant to fear not. And they went on to change the whole course of history. Perhaps this idea of fear not is what changes the world after all. So what does it look like for you, my friends? What does it look like for you to name your fear but allow yourself to be so overwhelmed with the presence of God with you that then leads us into great hope? Can you imagine what our church would look like if we rejected evil and injustice and oppression without fear, but knowing the, and claiming the overwhelming presence of Christ in those places? What would our world look like if we lived without fear, without fear of the other, without fear of rejection, without fear of destruction, without fear of sickness? What would the world look like? What would it look like for us collectively to be so overwhelmed because we know who this man is? We worship a resurrected Lord. And when we worship a resurrected Lord who conquered death, we can fear not because we know where to fix our attention and our affection. For those places that cause fear all the way down to your bones, I pray that you will be able to allow the resurrected Christ to be with you there. We know the resurrected Jesus, and because of him, we can go on to change the world without fear. Fear not, my friends, for God is with you. Let's pray. Gracious God, we love you. We thank you that you are with us in all of the storms, in all of those places that cause us to shake all the way down to our bones. Lord, would you meet us in that place and would you overwhelm us with your presence? You've done it over and over and over for us, Lord, and we know that you'll continue to because you are good and you are faithful and we trust you and we love you. It's in your name that we pray.